2: Welcome everybody to a new episode of this week in intelligent investing. Great to have with me, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. Phil, we're gonna
1: start with you today. Take it away. Thanks, John. This week I wanted to talk about something that that grabbed my attention. That's uh, somewhat of a derivative of what we've talked about in the past. So hopefully this isn't the turning into my segment as the old man shouting at the wind. But uh, there is a twist this week. So I think. There, there's a there's a important nuance to this topic. And the, the topic is about buying lottery tickets. So I think this is something everybody's probably either been explicitly or implicitly aware of in the past few months or the last year or so, maybe even longer, too. But it's certainly come to the forefront recently. And, and what I think is really interesting about this is, of Of course, whatever you want to call yourself as an investor, whether it's lowercase or uppercase V for value investor or growth investor, momentum investor, whatever, the only reason you're going to go out and do something in the market is because you believe it's mispriced, right? You believe that you're getting more bang for your buck, right? You're getting some value that's mispriced. And so, and that's fine, right? I mean, that's what we're all trying to do. There's lots of different ways to skin that cat. You know, everybody should be on board at this point. The problem is, you know, lottery tickets, by definition, are mispriced in the other direction, right? I mean, even their proponents, even the people who are willing participants in a lottery, if they were at least to stop for two nanoseconds to think about it, would realize that they're mispriced in the other direction, right? You're overpaying for those odds. And so this kind of gets back to if you want to continue to stretch the gambling analogy, you know, it's not that hard to figure out who the best team in the tournament is or who the fastest horse in the race is. Because that's usually pretty obvious, you know, strong team versus a weak team. It's no surprise when the strong team wins, it's all about the point spread or the odds implied, right? And so that's where it gets tricky. Um, and, and that's where it becomes, you know, both a skill and an art to figure out what the true odds should be. And if you if you like team X and they're offered at 10 to 1, but you think the true odds are more like 3 to 1, then that's obviously a really interesting opportunity. But the problem with lottery tickets... And, and, you know, having lived in Chicago for a long time before the Chicago Cubs ever won the World Series, I used to see this every year and just laugh. I mean, the Cubs, even when they were terrible, were always a very heavily bet team to win the World Series because people would, every year, back when they still had to go to Vegas, they'd go to Vegas and bid the Cubs down to, you know, some ridiculous number like 10 to 1 or 20 to 1 to win the World Series when the true odds were far closer to 40, 50, 100 to 1, right? And so, so that's exactly the kind of lottery ticket mentality that I'm talking about because everybody cared more about the ability to be able to have said, I owned a winning lottery ticket on the Cubs when they finally won the World Series rather than, yeah, I probably put a hundred bucks behind something that was only worth 60, right? Or I, I wasted money basically. So I... I think that's really become more prevalent lately. And we've talked about the casinofication and the gamification of markets and how that's a negative thing. I don't think there's any need to really repeat that. But I think what is concerning is that the people that are purveyors of these lottery tickets, and I'll go through my laundry list of them in a little bit, but certainly, you know, pre revenue SPACs, uh, you know, really speculative small cap companies. Um, would fit this bill, right? Where people are acknowledging that the payoff, you know, is acknowledged to be very high, right? If you're correct and everything goes perfectly, the payoff can be multiples of what you've invested, but the expected value and the, the, you know, the true odds are far below what you're paying, right? So why are people doing this? I mean, I think it gets back down to the misgambling compulsion, right? Whereby Americans spend more money and, and most countries, citizens spend more money on gambling than they do on just about everything else you could imagine combined, right? They spend more money on gambling than they do on tickets to the games on which they're gambling, books, movies, all that kind of stuff, right? So it's a very popular thing, and I get it. And there's nothing wrong or moral about speculation and gambling within reason, of course, so long as it doesn't become, you know, a problem. Um, But it, it really is a psychological bonanza, and all the lottery operators, all the casino operators all the investment bankers selling this stuff know how to design these things to very specifically prey on your predilections. So I think, I mentioned this before, but Addicted by Design, a book about Las Vegas-style gambling and particularly as it pertains to slot machines, is one of the better investment books you could possibly read when it comes to this kind of stuff. It has nothing to do with investing. Um, Now, the only flip side to this is I'm going to contradict myself a little bit because as with most things in investing, there's a paradox or a contradiction here that you have to be comfortable handling. And and that comes from two sides. One is if you look at just pure gambling, it is, it is true that the lowest income groups in most countries actually spend the most, certainly relative to their assets and their income, but oftentimes the most in absolute dollars on lottery tickets. And why is that? Right. I mean, you know, let's say there's a, you know, a family making $20,000 a year and, can't come up with $500 in savings, but is spending four or $500 a year on lottery tickets, you know, a couple of bucks a week or something that looks crazy. And, and it's not something I would recommend for sure, but you have to think about what their psychology is saying. I'm probably stuck in this socioeconomic situation. I'm probably not going to be able to climb the ladder in a way that would be meaningful to me. I'm kind of on the treadmill. Why not take a literally one in a million chance, even if it's mispriced and it's, really a one in two million chance and I'm paying for one in a million, like who cares, right? I mean, and that's not crazy. That's not irrational. Morgan Housel actually wrote about this, that little, he had a blurb on that and a comment like that in his book, The Psychology of Money, which I'm finally just getting to and highly recommend. I'm probably the last person in the world to finally read that book, but, but I do highly recommend it. And he's absolutely right. I mean, there's just nothing, when you really boil it down to what people's circumstances are, you know, there's nothing crazy and stupid and irrational about doing that. It's, it, but it doesn't mean it's a good idea either. Now, when you get into an investing context, though, it can be even more effective in certain circumstances, right? I mean, venture capitalists do this very effectively and every day. There are some really wealthy individuals and in family offices that can do this in a very effective way where they almost have like a pretty barbelled approach to it. They'll have a whole bunch of boring, highly rated municipal bonds, some index funds, and then some crazy speculative stuff right? Whether it's crypto, venture capital, you know, angel investing, like really low probability, but high impact stuff. I would argue that those people in general know more about what they're doing and are actually making some intelligent bets that may even have a positive expected value. So I don't think that's a great example of this. But I also don't begrudge, you know, people's interest in, in taking some really speculative high payoff bets. So the question then becomes how to do it. I mean, I don't see any ability for me to do this profitably. Right. I lack imagination, um, when it comes to, you know, burgeoning underdeveloped or undeveloped technologies and, and really speculative pipe dreams that may pay off. Um, I, I think it's frankly more effective for most people, but it's certainly more effective for me to consider the base rate and what's most likely to happen and, you know, kind of a range of probabilities and, 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 to kind of avoid losing money as a first principle, rather than drooling about that 50X payoff that's possible here. I'm more interested in saying, I'll wait until the odds are that I'm not gonna lose money first and then worry about the return. But that's that's just me, right? I mean, like I said, there are plenty of people that are very capable of doing this. Even, you know, big, great companies do have a very effective approach for this, where to fight off the stasis of um, complacency and bureaucracy that can build up in large companies, I mean look no further than Amazon and Google for, for some really effective ability here to, to deploy capital into some lottery ticket style bets. Now, again, that's a, more of an example of where they're taking a cash cow and just diverting a little bit of that money from search or, or YouTube or uh, you know the, the retailing business and Amazon into some really profitable side ventures that some of them work, some of them don't. But anyway, the key for me anyways, to always remember what you set out to do, so if you're setting out to, to set up a portfolio this sort of thing I actually think it can be fine. I think it can work. I don't think there's anything totally crazy about it but you really have to be cognizant of the the risk you're taking and what you're doing and as I do look around today I mean there's this great cartoon um, that somebody put on on the tweet machine the other day and I apologize it's an, an anonymous account I don't I think I know who it is but I'm not quite sure so I don't want to call it out. But it had, kind of two doors, two buildings side by side, each with an with an open door. And on the left, it was labeled high return on capital, strong return cash flow, trading at the biggest discount of value in years. And there's nobody standing in front of the door. And on the other side, the other door, it's a very high probability of losing everything, near zero probability of hitting the lottery. And there's like a line of a million people stretched as far as the eye can see. And so that is kind of true and indicative of what's going on today. And so... Uh, with that, I'll open it up to you, John and Elliot, and see what you guys think. If I'm too pessimistic on this or if you think there are other areas that, that are kind of overpriced and overprone to this sort of speculation these days. I mean, again, I think the, the boom we're seeing in some of these like Lucid, frankly, just recently and, and plenty of others are, are mispriced lottery tickets in such a way that they're egregious. But maybe I'm too pessimistic.
0: You know, I think it's a little of both. Uh, Lotto tickets have a role to play for some people at some times. Um, I remember, I think it was like in the very early days of Twitter polls. I can't remember exactly who it was, but someone ran a poll saying, would you take a 50-50 shot at a zero or 100 winner priced at 10, right? So effectively a 10 to one or nothing. You know, the expected odds are very much in your favor, right? The, The expected return. Um, And something like two thirds of the people said, no, they wouldn't take that kind of bet. And I found that shocking. Obviously, you know, some of this is conditional. I think this was like five or six years ago. So at the time, you know, people were probably still far more scarred about the financial crisis and thinking about what they could lose, not what they can make. I'd imagine, you know, depending if, if you push that out into VC Twitter, I'd imagine you get a very different result than value investing Twitter circa 2014. Um, So maybe we should do that as an experiment after this, send out that poll and see how people respond and get a sense for what um, everyone's thinking. But, you know, even that, like, you know, I obviously personally voted, yeah, I would take that shot. 50-50 shot at a zero, 100 winner price of 10. I I would, I would take that every day. But there are two problems as I see it. One is, you know, and and this is a big problem with portfolio structure of lotto tickets. Um, To truly have um, a, a positive expected outcome you do need an infinite opportunity set to realize um, your actual payoff at the end of the day so if your opportunity set is like 10 different 50 50 shots at a 10 to one payoff um, it's not quite good enough um, and you know you could use Kelly criteria to figure out exactly how much to wager and all that um, you know you obviously don't want to bet your whole stash on one such of these situations But if you know there are only going to be 10 of these kinds of situations ever, that's really not good enough to actually get you to want to bet on it. Uh, Because if the first like eight or zeros um, and the next two work out, you're still, you know, you you could end up in a troubling spot even still, uh, depending on how you sized your bet. And the second is, it's really damn hard to know in the market in particular, if you're right on how you handicap the odds. Um, So if you're off by just a little bit, um, you know, a positive expected outcome could be actually negative. Um, and so, you know, I, I think because of overconfidence bias and for a lot of other reasons, people are kind of more inclined to um, if, especially if they're predisposed, like with the, Cubs, if, if you're a Cubs fan, you're more inclined to want to believe that they have a chance to win um, than what a truly objective person in that situation would, would determine. So, you know, I think there's that problem in investing where when we are looking at what we think might be a 10 to 1 payoff, we're actually like predisposed to want to believe that the outcome might be, might, might be possible. Um, and then, you know, in, in the market in general, we're dealing with uncertain payoff, right? You, you can never truly know that something's a 10 to 1. Um, so, you know, I, it does expose our behavioral vulnerabilities, So that said, you know, I mean, to get at the heart of your question, Phil, I really do think um, everything leads people to want to find these things more than they otherwise should. Um, It's heroic to get one of these things right because you get to feel like a genius and everyone looks at the people who got one of these right in a big way as such a genius. Um, And, you know, I mean, as far as I think, how it gets into a portfolio, if you could truly feel comfortable about it, you know these are the kind of things that you could take a small, like twenty-five bips to one percent position on from time to time, if you really, really, you know, have have a pretty good feel for the situation, and you know, could comfortably ascertain the odds and believe that over the course of a career, um, you'll have a fairly you know long i don't want to say infinite runway but but very large runway of these kinds of payoffs such that you know if if you habitually do these um you, you have a positive sum outcome in the end but if it's just a one-off you're probably just you know you might as well just give the money to charity and and pat yourself on the back for that instead
1: yeah that's a it's a great point about never knowing the true odds because that is the counterfactual there is fascinating and that's a whole other topic that I'm going to dive into a lot in the future, but you're right. So the issue is more, um, exactly what you said about, you know, the Cubs or whatever. And this is where I get nervous is that people just kind of smile and shrug and say, yeah, you know, screw it. You know, whatever. They, they don't know. Nobody knows whether the right odds in the Cubs between, you know, 1908 or, what was it 1912 anyway for for almost 100 <laughs> years there right every year no one knew whether the right odds were 20 to 1 50 to 1 100 to 1 but chances are you know even in the years they had really good teams that that never got close to winning the world series it was not 10 to 1 or 15 to 1 like it, the people going to Vegas making those bets knew they were overpaying and just didn't care so it was just like you said it was about the ability to look back in the future at your own self and say, I was so smart, I did this. Right. So they're <laughs> they're willfully tearing up money for the, you know, novelty of doing it. And that's fine, right? I mean, people can do whatever they want with their own money. It's just as an investing strategy, when it gets taken so far that people that probably don't have you know the ability to spare lots of money towards this and they buy a pre-revenue electric vehicle spec at a $50 billion valuation or something. I mean, that's like, you know, betting a baseball team or any team, It, it, it you know, way better than one-to-one odds to win something mm-hmm. where the true odds are like at best one in 10. I mean, it's just crazy. And so could it work? You know, could Lusa become a, Lucid become another Tesla-style home run for people that buy it and hold on to it? Sure. It's entirely possible. The, the odds of that are far greater than zero, but they're certainly not anywhere near the market. That's implied today, and so again, I think what's so fascinating here is that that's the one advantage other small investors have is like that no one in that world has ever really gotten rich, and will ever get rich as, as a venture capital style investor. No one ever really gets rich in that world as a uh, you know lottery ticket buyer in the in the stock market. No one in that world literally ever gets rich in the lottery itself, I mean, the, the, the data are very clear that if you actually win the real lottery, the personal bankruptcy rate is like (laughs) three X that of the normal population within the following 10 years, right? Because people so quickly take on spending in a lifestyle they can't sustain. It's actually a, you know, kind of a curse. And so what's amazing is to do the opposite of that, to like oversave your income and invest slowly and patiently for the long haul, like that can have real lottery style effects because by the time you get into your sixties, seventies and eighties, the compound interest of that adds up and it can be just enormous, but people, you know, want the instant gratification and that's human nature. And I totally get it, but it would just be nice if we could find a way to, to counteract that lottery mentality. I don't know. John, what do you think? Yeah,
2: I think this distinction between objective and subjective probabilities is really key. I mean, in a literal lottery, you know the tickets are overpriced just based on how the lottery business works. Um, Or if you throw a die, you know what the odds are of a six coming up. Um, Whereas in the stock market, um, we're really dealing with subjective probabilities uh, all the time. And there can absolutely be underpriced lottery tickets in the stock market. And as Elliot said, you know, that Twitter poll where you've got a 50% chance of uh, getting a 100 and a 50% chance of getting a zero, the expected value of that is 50. So if you can buy that for less than 50... You should actually do it. Um, the the real question is how much of your bankroll or your portfolio do you allocate to that? That's a really tough question. But I think even if you are only getting one instance of that kind of a bet, you should still you should still take it uh, because it hasn't it has a positive expected value. if you're paying 10 for a 50 expected value, and even if you don't get to replay that kind of bet many times, I, I, I personally think it still makes sense to take that bet even just once. But the question is, you obviously can't allocate all your money to it or even 50% to it. That's where Kelly could come in and you can then take like half a Kelly or whatever, uh, whatever is comfortable actually. But I think this this idea of subjective probabilities is really really interesting in the stock market because where there is a lot of value to getting a lot of these kinds of bets is that you constantly get feedback about your original estimate of the probability. Like if I'm making a bunch of these probabilities and I think the chance is 50% that I'll make a 10 bagger um, or a 50 bagger, but like 10 in a row actually go sour, I'm going to start questioning my probability estimate. You know, because it's really low probability that if you have a 50% that after 10 you're going to totally strike out all 10. So maybe the probability of success was actually a lot lower than I thought. So I think that feedback loop has a lot of value. Um and then finally I would just say um you know, I think knowledge of specific opportunities just goes a long way because it's easy to brush things with a very broad brush. Like I always considered Tesla to be too expensive um, or some other company and I never invested in it. Maybe somebody had enough knowledge to actually estimate that probability a lot better than I did because I just, you know, I just basically... Um, say any company with a a price to sales above 20x is um to me a a bad bet but there can actually be some really good bets in there but the key is to actually know uh, something that others
1: don't know as to why that probability is is, is in your favor exactly so that, that that's well said about what i was trying to get at and you said it better than i did but you have to know something and you have to try to make an effort to ascertain what the probabilities are. And that's where I think you lose a lot of people and understandably, right? I think if you asked your average lottery ticket buyer, I'd actually be curious if there's got to be some research on this somewhere. I'll try to find some, but you know, how many people would, would probably embarrass, be embarrassed a little bit, would acknowledge that they know they're buying something that's mispriced against them. If they're literally buying a lottery ticket, how many people would agree if they're buying a stock that's, you know, got a crazy valuation? Maybe. But again, so I think the point is if you can make an argument that you're buying something that, you know, it's a hundred up and and one down, even though the odds should be, you know, less than that, who cares, right? They're saying like, I don't mind if I lose money on that, which is where it just gets a little weird. It's not that they have a different opinion on the probabilities. Yeah, they have different opinion on the probabilities. That's what markets are for, right? I'm not arguing that at all. And I, and I agree, like, that could be this is was the second part of of my question was the, i the only place i'm really any good at at hunting for lottery tickets is in distressed situations particularly where there's a good business with a bad balance sheet or a legal or regulatory problem or some sort of product liability or, or sort of some one-off disaster where it's temporary right i mean we we all know you know the famous example of of geico Um, The financial crisis offered up a ton of these, you know, most famously the the common stock of GGP that never got canceled. I mean, these are where you can find things that are literally priced, you know, arbitrarily, but like for something like a dollar or less than a dollar where the upside is enormous and where you do have a very legitimate risk that it goes to zero. But, you know, it's being priced like the odds of going to zero are one and two. And you think the odds are more like one and 20 And that's just enormously favorable. And of course, you should make that bet. And I'm with you, John. I mean, even if you find one of those, because Elliot raised a great point. I mean, the other big problem most investors are going to have in hunting for lottery tickets is that they're never going to get to play enough games with a positive expected value to ever make any money. And, And frankly, most of them are playing games with a negative expected value. So it's like sitting in a casino. The more they play, the more they lose. But in this case, John, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you find one with a positive expected value, yeah, you should play it. And it just gets down to sizing. And I think most people are semi-prudent about that and not getting too crazy. I mean, I think full Kelly is is crazy for most people. Even half Kelly is probably too much because it's really easy for for aggressive risk-seeking people to to take on way more than they can chew. So that that can be a huge problem. But um what what other places do you guys find to be fertile hunting ground for lottery tickets? I mean, the obvious ones that are in vogue right now are, you know startups, you know, high growth, you know, new, new-ish industry sectors where there's there's common stock that's tradable that, or or even illiquid common stock that, you know, just has massive upside in it. Um, again, my preference has always been other things. But what do you guys find? Well, that's, that's if I could take
0: one pause, we've said Kelly a few times and talked about the Kelly criteria. And I just want for anyone listening, I'd strongly recommend the book Fortune's Formula by William Poundstone. It's a fantastic book. Um, and it's where I was introduced to the Kelly criterion, like, you know, maybe 15 years ago when I first read the book and, you know, it's a really interesting book and it's a history of Claude Shannon, the development of information theory. It starts with a story about, um, horse betting, um, using, uh, the telegraph to send signals on betting and, um, talks about Ed Thorpe and, you know the the real story behind 21 beat the house uh the movie that they made about blackjack uh with the mit students who were able to to beat the house um so if you're interested in kelly criterion and want to know a little more i think that's a good good starting point you know as for hunting grounds first i got a confession to make i've been to vegas three times in my life i have put ten dollars on the islanders to win the stanley cup each time i couldn't help myself um i'm not a big better you know one of the times i went to vegas i didn't make a single other bet but you know, I'm, uh, I'm that sucker. Like, how could I go to Vegas and not, I mean, that's fun,
1: right? I mean, yeah, it's the novelty and it's 10 bucks. I mean, that's where Again, I'm not, there's no moral high ground there. It's where you get worried that like people (laughs) convince themselves that they should put like a huge chunk of their retirement savings into pre-revenue SPACs or something because the lottery ticket payoff is so enormous, right? I mean, people are looking at the amount of life-changing money that was made by certain individuals just last year, right? And they're they're just kind of piling into that kind of stuff, right?
0: Absolutely, yeah. And one of the funny things, one of the ironies of it all is we've got legalized sports betting happening throughout the country. That's a bet I would not make planted on my couch. (laughs) Like, you know, being able to do that is not as interesting as going to a place where I can actually do it.
1: That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Actually, the availability almost works in reverse
0: hundred percent for me. I don't know if that's universally true, but for me, that's absolutely the case. Like, you know, if I'm sitting on my couch, I'm more inclined to give $10 to a charity I really like than I am to, you know, bet it on the Islanders to win the cup because I can like what I could do that any day. Like it doesn't make a difference to me in terms of like your actual question, hunting for lotto tickets, like where are some of the best places to find lotto tickets are. I mean, I almost think by definition, biotech is that uh, domain. And, you know, it's exceptionally hard to truly handicap the odds, but, you know, there are good base rates you could apply. You could know exactly what percent of drugs make it from phase one to phase two to phase three and approval after NDA. So even without any knowledge of the specific drug, if you apply base rates and do it broadly, perhaps there are situations where you could find mispriced lotto tickets. Though, you know, it's not easy. It's hard. um, It's not a place I dabble in uh, at all, but, you know, I think it's truly a domain for applying this sort of uh, lotto ticket thinking. Um, Some other areas where I think it makes sense, uh, you know, distress, absolutely. I I think in situations where, you know, the market's pricing in a zero and you could approach it quite differently, um, definitely makes sense. Um, And yeah, you know, obviously, angel investing, venture capital um, is, is the most obvious one. Um, hard, hard time thinking of other areas um, where, you know, maybe I've blocked the rest out of my mind because I, I view them as ways to give away rather than actually try to make money.
1: No, well, that's why I think it's so hard. I mean, if there were obvious hunting grounds, you know, that would be one thing, but that's the whole point. I mean, finding winning lottery tickets is really difficult. And so mm-hmm. that's why it's kind of weird that this having such a moment right now where people think they're just laying around in the street and all you have to do is this or that. I mean, and by the way, biotech is a great example. I mean, I think we've talked about this before, but there's a couple of funds out there where all they do is buy, and again, there's an important twist. They buy fallen angel biotech and biopharmaceutical companies, right? Where they've had a product problem or a temporary setback in a phase one, phase two, phase three trial or something like that. And where they can come in with a high level of expertise, I mean, we're talking years of, of data clinical data phd's on the payroll all that good stuff and they can say no no this is now being you know thrown out with the bathwater this is actually a probability bet here and it's being priced at way less than that and that's a fantastic strategy again i can't do that but for them that makes all the sense in the world so I, that's why i'm just so skeptical of this style of investing having such a moment is because it's just unless you were a super skillful specialist. It's a sideshow, right? I mean, this is not, this shouldn't be the core way that most people are spending their time and money. And and because the casino operators are pushing it so hard right now, I think it is getting to be a lot of how people are spending their time and money, and that's not going to end well.
0: Yeah, well, you said it very well with Lucid, right? I mean, the idea is quite simple. Lucid is a 10 to 1 shot at actually working. and may, Maybe that's being generous, but it's a 10 to one shot at actually working, but priced at $40 billion, it is not a 10 to one bet in the market at all. It's like an inverse 10 to one. Right. Um, and so, you know, I mean, there's an interplay between price and actual probabilities in that sense. So that's even worse. Like when price is deterministic of it being 10 to one, that's, that's better than when, um, you know, the company itself is a 10 to one shot at, at some sort of moonshot. I think there's even an ETF these days called Moon, which is just, you know, putting together a basket of moonshots, which on the one hand is quite interesting because, you know, what I was talking about of having an infinite number of these kinds of situations is great. On the other hand, it's like every one of these moonshots is priced as if they're going to achieve uh, their inevitable success, right? It's priced as inevitable. And that's just insane. You're not betting on moonshots. You're you're betting on uh, something very different.
1: So you guys may know the answer to this. I don't know it off the top of my head, but I think it's safe to say that Amazon has had a couple of, you know, side bet moonshot style things that have worked, obviously. I mean, I I don't don't know if it's really all that fair to call them that. I I guess they would agree with that. I mean, Amazon Web Services kind of grew out of a natural outgrowth of their existing strategy, but certainly we could all agree that Google does this intentionally, right? Alphabet, And, and they have, have one or two of the best businesses the world has ever seen, some of the best business people in the organization running the show, some of the absolute brightest engineers, software developers, uh, technologists, business people taking on very explicit moonshot style investing for what now, at least 15 years they've been doing that? And are there any examples of that returning any positive value so far?
0: As a frustrated Google shareholder, or I mean, I'm kind of happy. I'm not that frustrated. It's been a long time. Uh, no, no, not at all. And I think that's one of the interesting contrasts. The way Amazon right. approaches it is they're really small bets. Um, the way Google approaches it is they're really big bets. And the other wrinkle that I think Amazon does really well with it is, you know, it, it, if you take a small bet and you end up with zero, um, you may have lost the money you put behind it, but you actually do acquire knowledge and you could analyze what did and did not work about what you tried and reapply exactly. those lessons in other areas. And so what actually looks like a zero might be very valuable because you might've picked up an insight that informed something else. 100%. I don't think Google's approached it in that way at all. Like, I don't think, you know, the failure of launching balloons to bring a uh, really cheap Wi-Fi to everyone. Um, you know, I don't know how you reapply that knowledge to something else very easily. Uh, but the failure to launch a tablet as Amazon could really inform your go to market with Alexa. And so, you know, a failure is not a failure and it's very different. Or, sorry, I meant a phone, not a tablet in that sense.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it's, a, it would be a whole fascinating podcast of its own to compare the way those two companies have tackled this problem. My, and we should do that. By the way, my I'm not the expert. Hundred <laughs> percent. But my only comment wasn't to be critical of Google at all. My comment was the opposite. I actually think what they've done makes tons of sense because they have an enormous, have a couple of enormous cash cow businesses, and and this is the most rational thing they could possibly do. Both in terms terms of continuing to grow and add value to the overall enterprise, but also to just move forward the cause of, of business and humanity. If you want to get really deep and philosophical about it, like we have the resources, we have the people Let's swing for the fences and they're doing it in a way where it doesn't jeopardize the company in any, I mean, to the, to the contrary, right? Like even though they've not produced any home runs out of the BoomShot bet. The business has done just fine. And so that's the whole point. They were smart, they were intentional, and they did it in a way where they could fail safely. And, and so I guess my the only point of this really is that if, if Alphabet, who's bringing to bear probably the most effective set of tools that humanity has to offer, right? Unlimited time, almost unlimited financial resources, almost unlimited human capital, and they've failed... To produce a moonshot over the last 15 years, but you, Joe Q public buying, you know, a, a sold SPAC thinks you're going to outperform this. I think you're just delusional, right? (laughs) It's just crazy to say, I mean, what you're basically saying is like, I'm better than all of these people doing this for a living inside of alphabet and, and chances are like a lot of these things, by the way, that are now all coming public being sold as, as brightly wrapped lottery tickets are ideas and companies that were passed on by all of these other great, successful people, right? So, I mean, again, it's it's the old question about, like, every time you see an oil well in Texas come up for sale, know that I passed on it three times, right? So, it's, you know, you, you have to pause and ask yourself those kinds of questions, right? And, and I think the, the Alphabet Google example just proves how hard this really is. Great point. I, I think there's a real distinction to be made between...
2: A company like Google investing in a moonshot and somebody in the public market investing in a stock. Because if you think about it, Google is investing in all these moonshots at a zero pre-money valuation. I mean, literally, if they invest a hundred million into something, they got a hundred million in the bank, they own a hundred percent of that project, and then it's all about the potential moonshot ROI on that. But if you are a public market investor, buying Tesla or some other company thinking that's your moonshot, the business has to be a moonshot just for you to not lose money. You are not going to make moonshot kind of money from a business that is viewed as a moonshot by almost everyone out there who is playing that you know momentum stock market game. So I think that's such a and 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 that's why I you know this this talk of finding hundred baggers has been so popular. That's fine, but I have a bit of an issue with it because if you are just on the lookout for hundred baggers, you are going to often make mistakes because, you know, I, I bet a lot of people investing in Tesla think that's a pot- potential hundred bagger. Well, maybe from five years ago, but from today, you're talking about a hundred trillion dollar market cap company if you're buying it today, basically. So, um, you know, and and uh, if you look at the literature on this, uh, Chris Mayer obviously has a terrific book out on that. You know, you gotta buy them kind of cheap to really get your the odds right for for finding these hundred baggers. So I just feel like people are mistaking a business moonshot for an 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 investment moonshot, and the two are very different, and you look for them very differently as well.
0: That's I think a great that's plan. such a great yeah. I what I love about that is you know a hundred to one. Um, both the Phelps book and Chris's book, 100 Baggers, were really influential on me. And I think the key is that, you know, the framework is you don't actually look for 100 baggers. You look for a list of traits that that all these companies tend, that many of these companies tend to have in common. And so it gets to kind of first principles. And it's like, you need a degree of cheapness. Um, You need a product that has, has some degree of longevity with a little change around it. Um, You need a management team who's got aligned interests, right? It's it's about the key principles behind it, and you need a certain framework as a as an owner to know that along the way there will be you know big bumps. Um, But to achieve a hundred to to actually own a hundred bagger, you have to be willing to take a certain degree of pain along the way. And none of it is about saying like, okay, where could I find something that's going to be a hundred to one? And so I think that's that's a huge point you make.
2: And and just one area where um, to mention, Phil, you asked the question, where can we find lottery tickets? Uh, Well, one area that's kind of obvious to me is just uh, not necessarily a stock being a lottery ticket, but derivative securities on that stock uh, definitely can be lottery tickets, let's say options or leaps, Um, you know, that's, that's an area where if I have a lot of conviction on a stock... Um I might look at uh, you know the the risk reward on the leaves on the leaps kind of how they would pay off uh, if my thesis works out and um uh, you know occasionally you can find some interesting opportunities there but obviously uh, the downside is 100% uh, so those truly are lottery tickets.
1: Yeah that's a good point. I mean there there are plenty of different ways to create your own Lottery ticket, right? You can just add leverage to anything and and skew the distribution to be far more extreme. So that you know, derivatives are a great way to do that. I, I've probably done, I've done very little there. I've I've owned some tarp warrants and that sort of thing over the years, where they were derivatives and in, inherently had some leverage in them. But in general, I'm not much good there either. So I'm I'm not going to be all that helpful. I think uh, you know, I know people that. That do a lot in weekly options, right? And I mean, you, you saw that to the downside or to the detriment of most people in the, the GameStop episode recently, where I think options played a, a huge part of that story that didn't get very much attention, which was kind of strange. But um, you can certainly go hunting for lottery tickets in the options market, and they're everywhere, right? I mean, they are all over the place by definition, right? There, there are lottery tickets out there, that are being sold as such and, and actually existing. Um, I think, again, you're adding a couple of complicating factors to it if you choose to go that route. I mean, one, you're adding the leverage and two, you're adding the, the time value that's, that's cut off by the, the date of the option, right? You're paying away that theta and decay. So uh, people just need to be, be cautious and be aware of that. And I guess the last thing I'll say on it is just, even though I asked the question, you know, I, I sort of laid it out as like, look, lottery tickets are great. There's nothing wrong with gambling. Uh, It can be taken way too far, particularly in some of the stuff I'm seeing right now, which is, I think, indicative of of where we are in the market. But there's nothing wrong and immoral. And if you can do it intelligently and go hunting for lottery tickets that you can actually understand and actually value and, and take a probabilistic view on, then great, go for it. And so by asking about good hunting grounds, it was just to kind of explore the other areas that are acknowledged to be out there, even if I can't hunt for them. But look, I think the other side of that argument is there's just nothing wrong. And in fact, it's probably more sensible for almost everyone to just not hunt for lottery tickets and just stick to something that's more predictable, but but more, you know, long-term attractive, right? I mean, not everybody, and in fact, the vast majority of people will never gain a material amount of wealth or well-being from pursuing lottery tickets. So there's nothing um, even though it may seem boring, it's less exciting, whatever, there's nothing wrong with just sticking to more vanilla, longer term, non-lottery ticket investments.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think the term YOLO is one that's, uh, become. Vogue in <laughs> How the, did it yep. take
0: this long to get there? <laughs> Great. Right?
2: Like this is what we've been talking about for <laughs> the last half hour is just YOLOing on something, right? Um, Hey, Elliot, um, let's move on to to your topic, if, uh, if you can uh, fill us in.
0: Sure, yeah. So, you know, it being the end of February, I figure it's a timely, maybe perhaps two weeks late to talk about it. But I really wanted to talk about earnings season, what it means, what my process is like, and some of the stuff that happens um, along the way. Um, you know, earnings season is basically the time when we get... A window into what's happening at our companies, and there's a lot that we need to do as analysts in trying to, you know, piece together all the information and build our mosaic about, uh, or kind of expand uh, our mosaic about the companies we follow. And it's also a time of extreme price volatility in single names, not necessarily the market broadly, but in single names. And so, interesting opportunities to, to emerge out of this, both. In terms of, you know, some stocks get absolutely beaten up and you might want to be paying attention to whether it's justified or whether it now brought it more rationally to an area you might want to pay attention. Or there might be companies who have, I've used this phrase, we've used this phrase, episodic pivot a couple times where, you know, there's good news and it's not necessarily fully priced in and you might want to, you know, look for an angle to get even more interested So, we get a lot of information. We have to synthesize it. Often, especially with portfolio companies, we have like an operating thesis that we're working behind. Um, So, you know, you want to think of it in a Bayesian way. You want to weight what you know and integrate the new information accordingly, right? You don't necessarily want to all of a sudden have this new information and you rip everything up that you've had before, that you've believed before. You want to think, you know, how does this new information incrementally impact what I already believe? And, you know, sometimes it feels like in earnings season, what we're doing is just dodging bullets uh, and other times it feels like we're just validating our hypothesis, but we always want to approach it with an open mind. And we want to think about how much this new information does truly impact what we believed before. Um, so you get this great lens into companies, but there are some frustrating elements to it too. Um, I find far too many analysts' questions are focused on like picking apart minutia of the last quarter and getting a lens into like directionally what might move the next quarter. And you know, meanwhile, basically four times a year, may add a couple for uh, conference appearances, but four times a year, we truly get an opportunity to ask our companies about like key strategic priorities to both think backwards and reflect on you know what their key priorities were and how they delivered and executed against them and what their priorities should be going forward. And so, you know, I get frustrated at how much is focused on the minutia. So to that end, I have this special affinity for companies who write letters, like a shareholder letter, not just a PR release that's like, you know, one canned quote from an exec in the numbers. Like, I like companies who write letters that reflect on these things and that are thoughtful and, you know, talk about the KPIs of the business and let you know exactly what their you know, tr- how, how they think about the business and try to really inform you. Um, have this affinity for companies who skip candor marks, right? Like there are a lot of companies out there who will merely read for the first 30 minutes of their uh, uh, conference call. They're, they'll merely read exactly what they released in their P- press release uh, one hour earlier. And it just drives me nuts. Like have a little respect for our time and use that time to actually inform us and tell us what you know really matters. So I I know Phil spoke about Netflix in one of our earlier pods and I just love, you know, how they go straight into the q and I don't necessarily love how, you know, it's only one analyst who gets an opportunity to ask the questions, but overall, you know, getting to the Q&A, getting to like answer the questions that are important, right? There's information we could get from, you know, uh, what the questions are that are being asked are like you you get a sense into what the average person thinks about the business, how they think about it, what's important to them. And you could think about whether you're thinking on a different plane than everyone else out there. And you also, you know, truly get a feel for how the company responds to questions. Um, and you know, I I kind of love when when they get hard questions and, and really get put on their uh, toes and have to think about it. Um, so you know, all those things are important. And then you know, I want to demystify a couple of things, because even when I started doing this professionally, I was surprised by some things. But you start learning about behaviors and start learning about actual processes. And there are things that happen behind the scenes. Um, and so there's more than meets the eye uh, with just earnings. So first off, heading into earnings, you'll see analysts adjust their estimates a lot. And analysts speak to management heading into these things and they get directional color. They don't get stuff like this is exactly what we're going to do. But they get like, oh, you know, maybe maybe a CFO will say something like eh, this number is a little too high or like, you know, people out there are a little too optimistic about blah, blah, blah. And they'll do what's called walking down or, you know, maybe on the on the vice versa. They'll walk up certain expectations because you don't want to end up in a situation where there's this huge delta between what analysts are actually out there with versus what the company is actually going to deliver again. You see it more in the down. Than the up direction. Like everyone likes a positive surprise. No one likes a negative surprise. And I think it's actually quite important for a company to try to engage with the analyst community and make sure that no one's like, that that the consensus isn't way over optimistic. So you get what's called walking down numbers when that's happening. Um, So, you know, in the weeks leading up to earnings, you tend to see some pretty uh, big adjustments. And then, um, you know, after the actual earnings call, and this is increasingly common. More and more companies do a buy side call that's managed by a different analyst each quarter, um, and these are where you get some of the best questions, where you get people focused on strategy and long term and all that. But I find it very frustrating as someone who doesn't get much sell side access. Um, the sell side is are, are the gatekeepers for these calls, and so a lot of long term investors often can't even get onto these calls, and it's quite challenging. Um, and you know, especially because it's where some of the, like I said, some of the best questions are asked. Um and I think companies, you know, maybe should be a little more candid about how much of this goes on and how much of an opportunity they have to engage with shareholders on a different dimension. Um, so you know, that that's one of the elements that I I, I really it's starting to drive me a little nuts, um, even though I'm I increasingly get access to these calls. Um and then as far as my process goes, right? Like I will spend I, I tend to listen to every call. Um and what I'm listening for, you know knowing that I have a transcript coming off after what I'm listening for things that you can't pick up in print. I'm listening for tone. I'm listening for tone from both the analysts, you know, are they, do they sound excited, happy, uh, or do they sound puzzled and confused? And I'm listening for tone from management, right? I want to know, does management sound excited? Do they sound enthusiastic? Do they sound happy to be there and eager to answer questions? Or do they sound like they're dodging? Um, You know, there's a behavior that I call running out the clock where, you know, uh, uh, analysts could ask a really good question and instead of addressing it directly, management could go on babbling for about 30 minutes, trying to make sure that as few questions as possible could be asked in the limited one hour that they give people every quarter. You know, so I'm paying a lot of attention to like the softer stuff, knowing that afterwards I am going to read the transcript again. And there I'm going to take my detailed notes. I'm going to highlight things based on you know different like does this fall into the guidance silo is this a reflection on their growth is this something on strategy is this something on a kpi and you know i'm going to neatly kind of label all these things and uh sentio is pretty nice for my workflow there where i could after the fact search and sort uh by each of these factors and kind of like look at how it's evolved from one call to the next in my experience with the company um, and I'm gonna then, you know, take that new information. I'm gonna go to my model. I'm gonna think about any changes that I need to make. I'm gonna, you know, kind of incorporate new information, roll things forward, especially now moving forward one year. And you know, like especially now, I'll add one more year to my DCFs and try to think about how that changes value, if at all. Um, and so, you know, I think it's an important part of our process. It's really where we get to synthesize all this new information. Um, and you know, one thing I did not say, I'm not going to go and act immediately, right? I'm going to let information, uh, be processed. I'm going to make sure that I could check my emotions at the door and I'm not reacting that I'm actually being thoughtful and methodical and have a process behind it. Um, so with that, those are my high level thoughts about earnings and my process. I'd love to hear from you guys, how you approach earnings season and, and what it means to you in that sense.
1: Wow. You teed up a lot of things there. I feel like, uh, we could spin off a whole corporate governance and investor relations podcast for this topic. I mean, you know, this is one of my hot button issues. So um For sure. I love, I love talking about all this kind of stuff and it it does boggle the mind. I mean, I'm probably way more frustrated than you are with how the process generally gets run. I totally echo your comments that the vast majority of earnings calls, I, I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth, but I think the vast majority of company quarterly earnings calls are a total waste of time Um, Mm -hmm. management teams that somehow feel compelled to put out a press release and then read it to us like we're in first grade is frustrating you know having nothing but congratulatory you know great quarter guys you know keep up the good work bob you know that that kind of stuff from the sell side is is just not helpful to anyone and look i understand the need to filter and screen questions but it 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 does beg the issue why not do a written question and answer question and answer session in conjunction with quarterly results you have an open accessible email address just like you do for any corporate communications either at the board level or the investor relations level it's it's basically required so you you solicit questions uh, in conjunction with your quarterly results you have your CFO or whoever's in charge of your investor relations effort filter out those questions for the ones that are pertinent and the ones that are helpful because, look, they're already doing that by screening, you know, which sell-siders are allowed to ask questions. So you're not, you're not violating Reg FD in any way here. And then you publish and it gives your executives time to actually put a thoughtful response together and they can do it in a much more efficient manner. And then you publish it in an 8K and it creates a more level playing field for investors, not a less level playing field. Because that way, if Elliot Turner of Stanford, Connecticut has a great question that would benefit not just the company, but all the other shareholders, and he can't get access to the call because it's dominated by sell-siders, this way it can be addressed in a public forum, right? I mean, this is a good thing for markets. It's a good thing for the company. It's just, an, it, it saves time. It's just an obvious solution, and, and yet nobody does it for, or very few people do it, for whatever reason. I, I at John's conference a few years ago, I gave a whole presentation on on this sort of thing and how few companies do it, and it, it's just infuriating. So over the years, I mean, to address kind of the broader question, Elliot, of, of my process, I mean, over the years, um, I can probably count on one hand the number of times some truly shocking information has come out in the traditional quarterly results dog and pony show. I mean, again, I think they tend to be such sterilized, overly scripted things for most companies that they're just not that helpful. The companies that really do it well and really do it in a thoughtful way, you kind of know what's coming. And and if you get new information, you can take in and digest it. And by the way, just something as simple as the cadence of that can be really important, right? Why on earth, if you're a company, would you release results at six or seven o'clock in the morning Eastern time, and then hold a conference call an hour or two later, particularly with like the market open and people busy and like right in the middle of the commute for most of the country. (laughs) Like what? That's just nonsense, right? Like why wouldn't you release results at four or five o'clock in the evening, give people that evening and then overnight hours in the next morning or even the weekend to digest those results and then have the (laughs) conference call if you're going to even do one, right? I mean, it's just, very simple, commonsensical stuff. I totally agree. Writing a letter each quarter it doesn't have to be long; just a page or two. I mean, a few companies do this really well, but not very many. IAC has actually become an exemplar in that regard of writing a really thoughtful, really helpful quarterly letter. Netflix has always had, or at least for ten years running now, um, exceptional investor relations, um, and it, you know I think it's no accident that it goes hand in hand with good companies, right? I mean, it's uh, there's certainly some selection bias going on there. Um, And then I guess in terms of what I do, I mean, I I actually, one thing I probably disagree with a tiny bit on on what you said, Elliot, is that I actually think that the tone and reading between the lines is kind of a double-edged sword. I mean, I've had as many instances of executives who may may not even be doing it intentionally, right? But these these are skillful communicators, right? I mean, if you find yourself in the CEO or CFO seat or the president of some division speaking on an earnings call for a large public company, chances are you're a good communicator, right? And you you didn't get there by total accident. So I I can point to plenty of examples where executives in that position were were intentionally using communication methods and tone to kind of pull the wool over their investor's eyes when things get really bad anyway, right? Or when they want things to be perceived as really good. Um, So I actually... I mean, I do listen to co- some calls live. I do listen to audio replays of some calls. But just as you mentioned, kind of doing it both ways, where you go back into the, the transcript, um, I think it's harder to BS your way through something when you take the tone out of it. When you actually just read what was said and take out inflection and emotion and all the little subtle you know, tricks that humans have evolved to, to pull on each other, I think it's harder for me to get snowed by whether I like or dislike someone if I'm just reading their comments in black and white. I mean, there's probably some offsetting negatives to doing it that way too, but I, I've just found more, I also find it to be just way more time efficient, right? Because again, I would say probably 80 or 90% of the average words spoken on a public company quarterly earnings call are a waste of my time. So if I'm if I'm going through the transcript, I can just skip all that stuff, or I can roll my eyes across the page and just realize, okay, this is garbage, this is fluff. On we go and get to the parts that I care about, and it's just way more time efficient that way. And yeah, in terms of access, I mean, that's the last thing I'll say. I mean, I, I think it, the the way the the landscape is, it's obviously way better now. You know, over the last twenty years with Reg FD, it's not the, the whisper number stuff is is better. But think about one, the access of not allowing a real engagement with your shareholders, even if they're small. I mean, that's that's bad form, right? I, I think it should just, every company executive should endeavor to take up a real dialogue with their actual holders at least once a year. And then, you know, in, in terms of how they go about doing it, I mean, there, there's a lot of different ways to do it. But, the, but back to the quarterly thing, the whisper number, what a waste of time that is, right? I mean, is there a single company in the history of the world where they would look back after a great 10 or 20 year run and say, like, thank God we talked down that number for the second quarter of, you know, 10 years ago, whatever, right? Like it's, it's just such a waste of time. It takes up the CFO's time, the CEO's time, whoever's doing it. It's a total waste of their time. It does not add to price discovery. It's just nonsense. Like just skip all of that. If the market gets totally out of whack, there are ways for you to handle that in a direct and fair and transparent manner. And by the way, 99.9% 99.9% of the time, that's never going to be an issue. And you should just focus on running the business, right? So the the whole dance around, you know, boy, you know, the fact set estimates this quarter look 10 cents too high. I better get on the phone with nine different sell-side analysts and try to like very cautiously tiptoe around Reg FD and talk down the number in advance of the call or else we're going to have a negative 6% day in the stock. Like, who cares? That is noise. That is a total waste of time. And I just wish every company would get away from that.
2: Yeah, I guess I'll I'll jump in and just uh, echo that, uh, Phil. I, I do understand why it's happening. That's just how that system works. I mean, I spent a little bit of time on the sell side um, and, you know, those analysts, they got to get on their call with their clients. They got to make sure their model is up to date and uh, they got to punch in some numbers for their next quarterly estimate and so forth. I mean, it's just... It, it, it would will take a lot of um kind of will power by a ceo to uh to just say i'm not going to play that game uh which would be the right way to to go about it in 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 the vast majority of cases but um you know people are what they are and uh, you're going to find very few that are willing to to do that um, i think in terms of uh, generally earnings calls or earnings press releases I want to go into every one of those with an existing thesis for the business or better said for the investment. So I for every company I own, I know what am I expecting and what am I looking for, for this to be on track with my own thesis. I really don't care what the thesis is of the market or the sell side or, or anybody, I got my own requirements, and that's what I'm reading about, that's what I'm listening for. And, um, and that will often lead to kind of a divergence between um, when a company actually reports what I think is really good versus the market's reaction might be, Uh, The opposite. And that presents some opportunities. Of course, I got to be right. But, you know, some of that is is simply due to time horizon. And if I'm looking longer term, like, let's say you have a distressed company, I'm just looking for survival. You know, the the analysts on the call are looking for, you know, do you have visibility into the uh, contract awards for the next quarter? I don't care you know, this is a company that just needs to survive and it will do amazingly well over a three to five year period. So I'm listening for something totally different than uh, a lot of other people on that call and certainly the sell side. Um, So in that sense, you know, that that issue of body language is a really interesting one because I find it very helpful um, to to listen for that. Again, because um, often I'm just listening for um, some tone around kind of the long term and what i personally care about so the management team may not even be aware of what am what am i what am i john specifically uh, listening for you know they may be kind of tuning their body language to to this to the to the cell site consensus and i and and so i i do find it uh, helpful um and you know but that comes with just just listening to tons of these calls and always recalibrating you know always have little theses in the market or in these kinds of calls, and always be testing those theses. I think that's kind of a George Soros concept to always have a thesis out there because and then it gets refuted or confirmed. And that's that's a great learning process. So um, basically, that's that's kind of what earning season means for me is getting my thesis refuted or not, and just kind of learning and, and, and trying to decide that way, you know, is my confidence in an investment growing or is it declining?
0: Yeah, no, that all makes a lot of sense. And yeah, to address the tone thing also, I think it comes off much clearer in the Q&A than the actual prepared remarks. Because in prepared remarks, you could could put yourself in a position, like Phil, you were saying, as a professional communicator to basically influence how you want things to come across. But if you're getting true questions, and by true questions, I mean not the kind where um, analysts feel compelled to hold back so as not to disappoint management and lose access. When you're getting true questions, um, it's hard for management to hide their tone on a question that's challenging to answer. For example, um, so right. I, I, I've I've found some very interesting wrinkles that way. Um, and Phil, you mentioned letters. Uh, you know, I, I would just throw out there the Jack Dorsey companies write fantastic letters. Um, And I think it's interesting. It's reflective of his personality in some ways is this really thoughtful um, kind of more quiet, humble communicator. And I I find you can pick up some very interesting stuff from, from the letters. And IAC is absolutely when, when they had their, their first quarter of writing a letter was the first quarter. I really dove in, I believe it was, um, if I get it exactly right. I think it was the Q4 or uh, 2015. So in the beginning of 2016 report, um, and I think that was incredibly helpful and really introduced the company in a different way to people. Um, you know, as, as for some of the stuff, I, John, I'm 100% right on how Soros, the Soros approach. You know, I think it's very Bayesian. I think it really, you know, echoes with how I how I approach it, right? I have a hypothesis. And those situations where the price reaction is opposite my reaction on the trajectory of the business those are some of the best opportunities for me when I want to accumulate to take a bigger swing because one of the actual, and I think this is something maybe in my broader uh, setting the stage for earnings season should have mentioned earnings season. Sometimes uh, the moves have nothing to do with the actual stock. What earnings day means in a lot of stocks is you get the biggest volume day in a quarter. And oftentimes let's say you have a shareholder who's been there for a long time and they want to sell and it has nothing to do with the business, they'll say, okay, earnings day is going to be the day I'm going to do most of my selling. Why? Well, because you know the volume is going to be there, right? If you want to move a lot of stock, you're going to do it when you know there's going to be someone on the other side and vice versa with buying a stock. Um, So I think thinking through those dynamics, um, you can find some great setups where someone's blowing out a position for reasons that have nothing to do with the earnings itself, um, where your analysis says, yeah, this is exactly not just confirming, but it, it like accelerates my belief in the business. Um, so, so those kinds of dynamics, I think get really, really interesting because there are um, truly some, what you'd call uneconomic uh, transactors that emerge by virtue of just the level of volume that happens.
1: Yeah, that's a good point about volume. I, I probably overlooked that from time to time, but I think you're right. I mean, you do have to go in kind of ready if you're thinking about buying or selling. I mean, that is can be a good day to do it, and and that's a good point. I think back to the the issue on tone and what you can read from executives. I mean, again, I don't discount that as a useful thing. I mean, again, there there are lots of opinions on this topic in terms of what's useful and and what's not. I mean. Ben Graham went so far at various points to say he never wanted to talk to management. And there there are people that have taken that view because they just don't want to be swayed by the human element of it. Um, I don't fall in that camp necessarily. I think talking to people, understanding people, understanding the business as more than just a stock, you know, truly a business that is a collection of people trying to do something is helpful. And so I just don't find the um that format to be all that helpful, right? The the, the quarterly conference call format. So, and, and in terms of access, I mean, you know, it does depend, but, you know, in general with most companies um, with some very notable exceptions, if you're a quality shareholder, right? There are ways to interact with management in a format that makes sense for both sides, right? Either one-on-one or in a small group or something like that, if you're willing to be patient and diligent about it. And, and of course, thoughtful and, and respectful with your, line of questioning. And so I find quite a bit of value there, right? And, and particularly, the more business-to-business the conversation can be, the better. It's just, you know, I think so many executives, for good reason, get on these quarterly calls and they're terrified, right? They're just in spin mode and they just want to say the right thing to please Wall Street, quote-unquote, and not screw up, right? And it's just not all that all that helpful, to me so I, I think it can be used to, I'll, I'll often go back and try to listen to something if the transcript isn't clear as to what the tone or intent was but I just find so much time wasted from from you know the, the song and dance routine that most quarterly calls are that I, I just skip most of them and go straight to the transcript in a lot of ways and, and again with the technology that you can use now to to filter and parse for certain language I think it can be an enormous time saver
0: yeah, I agree there. I wish more companies would do like their buy side call as their earnings call, uh, where the questions actually come sure. from shareholders and interested shareholders, where you could get a sense of what your co investors think and how they think and what's important to them. Uh, you know, to know that you're aligned with your co investors versus thinking about it differently could have meaning and consequence in certain situations. Um, and it's just such a shame that most of that call happens outside the scope of the uh, actual you know earnings uh, event um and it really is like disheartening in some ways because there are two levels of access and not all shareholders are truly equal in that sense right um and that's you know definitely uh, democratizing wall street has been a big theme of of this year so far um and if one thing were to change i'd i'd love to see more of that one of the interesting consequences after covid has been um i do think a lot more and and I'd say some of the better management teams have been more proactive, getting out there, speaking more, being more candid and and honest, uh, for lack of a better word, about how they think about their business, how they feel. Um, and I've, I've I've found that to be like inspiring in some ways and interesting. And I hope that persists even after like travel resumes and you can have gatekeepers who aren't digital, right? In digital, there is no scarcity. But when you go to a conference and there's a room of 20 people, you know, I, I, I think that's that's different. And I hope that, you know, they keep using some of these tools that we've now all gotten comfortable with and making sure that access isn't provisioned by a ticket at the door. Um, and, you know, I think that means a lot to smaller shareholders to know that they're on a level playing field in that sense. Like that's been one of the big questions about the whole Robinhood GameStop fiasco that they're changing the rules along the way, you know, like, that's one of the rules that I do feel has changed. And, you know, it's something that's uh, ho- for the better, something that's changed for the better. And hopefully there's, you know, once once you open certain doors, there's no going back. I'd, I'd, I'd love to see that stay.
1: Yeah, I agree. The, the democratization thing is interesting because it's often just kind of nonsense, right? I mean, again, like there's nothing free about a free trade, right? Right. These are all businesses. I mean, so I get really irritated with that kind of language from somebody like Robinhood because it's just such total BS. Um, But you're right. I mean, if you could find a way, and there's some pretty obvious ones, to actually open up better access to longer-term shareholders and and, and really speak to your actual constituents, and owners rather than just, you know, the mouthpieces of them, whether it's the sell side or not. I mean, that would be a positive thing. All right? So, John, to your point, I've always found this really fascinating. I think you're right. I mean, it does take a CEO with, um, you know, a strong backbone, so to speak, to kind of jump off the treadmill of, of the sell side process. But when I've actually pushed this directly with CEOs, you get nothing but yeah, but responses. And it just goes logically nowhere because I, I often start with kind of a leading question and a leading premise. And I would say, you know, if, if you were doing your job well and the company was in decent shape and you announced something that was not relevant to the company's operations or future value, and for whatever reason, because of that or because the market just declined for a bad reason and your stock sold off 20, 30, 40 percent For a reason that you thought was just total nonsense and totally irrelevant to the long-term value of it to its owners what would you do and the vast majority of them say something along the lines of either like well i would ignore it and just keep plugging along or we would you know start a buyback program to take advantage of that after we fully disclosed as to why we were doing it et cetera. and that's great both of those answers make total sense and so then i ask okay well why do you keep doing the sell side dog and pony show and they say, "Oh well, we we really have to, you know." And, it, and the reason they feel like they really have to is one of two reasons. Which is one that if they cut them off, and, and to your point, John, just sort of took that leap of faith and, and jumped off the treadmill, they think the stock would decline precipitously. <laughs> and I say, "Well, one, there's there's never really been any evidence of that. And two, if that were to happen, it would be exactly the scenario you which described, which is who cares, right? I'm either going to ignore it and keep driving the business forward, or I'm going to buy back stock. So." that's not a good reason not to do it. And, and the second reason they often give is like, "Oh, well, we need to keep cultivating relationships with the with the sell side and with the investment bankers." And I said, "Well, okay. Th- the problem with that is one, it's literally no longer it never was, you know, ethically valid, but it's certainly no longer valid at all to cul- to to curry good favor with a sell side equity research analyst to get better treatment out of the investment bank, right? I mean, you're you're acknowledging bad behavior, if that's truly your goal. But secondarily, if you're a legitimate company and you have a legitimate advisory or capital raising need, there has never been an investment banker in the history of the world that has refused to take that phone call because you don't run a quarterly song and dance routine with the sell side. Like You're not going to play favors, right? You're not going to engage the sell side analysts at firm X and snub firm Y. You're just going to say, we're not doing it for anybody. And I guarantee you, you can still have every bit of the relationship you want and need with the capital markets and with the investment banking community, if, if that's what you need. You, this, so one does not follow the other. And we get down to this end and they just kind of shrug and say, yeah, well, there's just no answer to it, right? So, I mean, do you think that's really true in the case that, that it would take some heroic deed? Or do you think it's just sort of psychology and inertia that keeps these CEOs hemmed in?
2: Well, I just feel like it's easier to do whatever everybody else is doing, right? Yeah, that exactly. is like yeah, that's just, just it. It's inertia, it's just yeah. I mean, they are herd animals as well. I mean, I think there's even studies that companies tend to buy back stock when the stock price is high and they don't buy it back when it's low on average, because they, they they have the same herd mentality that uh all of us do, or investors do, um, but certainly as business people, like they <laughs> just kind of do what's expected of them mostly. Uh, you know, maybe you see it less with owner operators, people who feel real agency with the companies they run, and kind of are principles. And uh, you know, I, I I think they probably care less. Um, but I would just also add that I, I think there's big differences between small caps and large caps. Here, we haven't really addressed this, but I think when you go down the market cap um, sizes, you know, you it's, it gets easier to get on the calls. It gets easier to have that uh, conversation with the CEO or the CFO. Um, the calls themselves, you can actually reveal more information because you know a lot of those are not as sophisticated. They're not scripted by the IR department necessarily. Um, so, you know, there's definitely value in um, in looking at smaller companies uh, also because of, of kind of some of the informational advantage that you could actually glean from, from those calls that's probably greater than you could from a large cap call, in generally speaking.
0: That's yeah, a that's great true. point. So many companies in the small cap space. I mean, I I think the analyst community has been, you know, largely gutted in a lot of the small cap space since the financial crisis, even. And so they're not so much the gate, they being the analysts are not so much the gatekeepers to access and companies look for ways to connect directly to their shareholders and have very healthy conversations and are a little more candid about their strategy and direction and, Um, You know, I mean, obviously, you can't paint the whole small cap, mid cap space with a brush. So there's uh, shades of of variance uh, in there. But I I have found that to be very true in approaching small caps. And, um, you know, sometimes they might have an outsourced IR who's kind of like, basically, their role is effectively to screen and make sure that only the right people get through to management in the first place. But by and large, they're just way more accessible and very different. Um, and I do find that in small caps, when they're not willing to talk, usually there's something they're trying to hide, and they're probably not worth your time anyway. Thank you so much for this conversation, guys. It was a pleasure
2: once again, and thanks everyone for listening. Goodbye for now.